0: Every behavior is communication, so your child is always trying to communicate with you with these behaviors.
1: my dear friend. Welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron podcast. My name is Cindy Hovington, and I am your host. Today we are having a guest return because there were lots of questions around the topic that I discussed with her. Dr. Julie Scora is a neuropsychologist specializing in neurodevelopmental conditions from McGill University here in Montreal. And the last time we spoke about some of the barriers that exist in our system when it comes to having a child diagnosed or trying to get some um, therapy for them or some assistance. But today we're following up that conversation to focus more on the social, emotional skills and behavioral um, issues that we might have as a parent with a neurodivergent child. Before I begin, I'd like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. I'd also like to thank BetterHelp and PocPoc. BetterHelp is a way for you to access therapy online to make it easy for you wherever you are. Um, You don't have to leave your home. And we've been getting so many uh, responses from parents who have joined now. You can get a discount as well. You can click the link in the bio. And PocPoc is an app, the first app that I ever downloaded for my kids, open-ended, Easy uh, on the eyes and the ears for parents, so that you don't have to see flashing lights and hear sounds that are disturbing. Such an easy, beautiful, open-ended. Um, app that I've been playing with my kids and I hope you enjoy the discounts for those down in the show notes. I'd also like to invite you to follow me on Instagram at curious underscore neuron. You can visit our website at curiousneuron.com. We have an academy with webinars and courses and PDFs that you can purchase and you can also um, rate and review the podcast. If you haven't done so yet, please make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode and rate it and review it and send me an email at info at curiousneuron.com. Dot .com and I will send you a free PDF as a thank you and I love knowing who's following here and who's listening. So please come say hello even if you haven't rated it and you don't feel like it, I'm okay. We're still friends. <laughs> but come say hello and send me an email at info@curioseron.com. At All right, I don't want to let you wait any longer. Here's my interview with Dr. Julie Scora. Hi Dr. Julie Scora. How are you? I am very well. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for coming back. I love having somebody come back to the podcast because it means it was a popular episode and that people had lots of questions, which is exactly what happened with your episode.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, great. I am very happy to be back. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, so what, just so in, in case we have some listeners that hadn't heard your episode, first of all, I will put the link um, to that in our show notes, but I just wanted to share that we spoke about some of the barriers that happen, um, when you're looking to get a diagnosis or some services, right. With neurodivergent children. That's right. Yeah. N- now what happened is that I got a lot of questions from parents that were questioning, you know, if they have a neurodivergent child and they truly are struggling with social um, and social emotional skills with their child, they feel like they don't have a lot of resources. So they were hoping for us to have this follow up conversation um, so that they understand their child a little bit more. So can we maybe begin around that in terms of you know, when uh, we we talk about tantrums a lot, but then is this what we're looking for? Is this similar in a neurodivergent child? Or I hear a lot of parents talk about meltdowns and saying that they're much longer and it's very difficult to help the child regulate. So what are we looking at in terms of the differences?
0: Yeah, so a lot of um autistic self-advocates and I'm gonna sometimes maybe use the word autistic individual and sometimes person on the spectrum or person with autism. I, I do vary my language because there are people who have different preferences. I just want to okay. sort of say that sure. at the beginning in terms yeah. of using identity first or person first language. So I try to be inclusive and kind of switch it up. Uh, but there's there's people who talk about there there are sort of autistic People that I've spoken with and autistic self-advocates have described the experience of a meltdown and even sometimes what they call an autistic meltdown um, that can be different than a tantrum. And it's it's because it's for a different reason. So I think the, the impetus behind an autistic meltdown is more. That the person feels overwhelmed, overloaded, and unable to cope in that moment. And they need time to, you know, regulate again. And that's why sometimes these meltdowns can be quite long. They can last a long time. There can be a lot of big emotions that are happening. And that kind of meltdown is. Different from what we consider a tantrum in most cases because it's not being done to get something that they want necessarily or to protest against something that they don't want. It can just be because that person is just completely overloaded and unable to cope. And so it's important to kind of distinguish between really what's causing that particular behavior so that you know what to do about it.
1: So if a parent is listening and has noticed that their child who is on the spectrum kind of struggles with that moment of coming back from school or daycare where there's that meltdown period, which I think we many parents see that with their child because they're overwhelmed from the day of, from their school day. Yeah. But now, you know, one parent might be able to help their child regulate versus the parent who's having this child, you know, just have this meltdown and not be able to regulate them. How can a parent if they point out that certain period of the day but they can't change the fact that they're in school what can they what can they do to support their child
0: well there's many different things that can be done and and hopefully what the best strategies would be would be to prevent that from happening in the first place so Got when it. we talk about behavior modification or behavior mm-hmm. intervention we talk about there being proactive strategies and reactive strategies, right? So the proactive strategies are things that you do before the behavior occurs to try to prevent it from happening. And then sometimes maybe you're not doing those things effectively or at all, and then the behavior occurs, (laughs) and then there's strategies that you might use to react to that once the behavior does occur. So it's always best to try to implement proactive strategies to stop that from happening in the first place. And really one of the best things to do in that case is to build functional skills to try to make sure that the child is able to communicate their needs and wants early enough that they don't reach that state. So a lot of children... Maybe, especially our neurodivergent children, maybe they can't always communicate Mm -hmm. uh, very effectively what they're feeling. And so sometimes they can get a little bit too far into their emotions before somebody catches on that Mm -hmm. they're not doing okay. So teaching them means of communicating that earlier is actually one of the best strategies. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's not something you can do in the moment once the behavior has occurred. But it's really important to try to identify what is causing this behavior and then put in those proactive strategies that can help maybe derail a meltdown that might happen. Uh, but there's lots of other proactive strategies, too, that we can also discuss if you want to <laughs> talk well, about I, so.
1: Yeah, I I guess parents are wondering, from what I understand, you kind of want to be the detective, right? Like kind of trying to figure out like what's happening, what's contributing to that. So if you know that there's some sort of, we hear a lot about like sensory sensitivities and these overloads, um, is this something a parent can be more mindful of? Like what's happening, let's say in the car, you know, maybe coming back from school rather than blasting music to kind of lower it or the opposite, depending on what the needs of that child are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So mm. we talk about in psychology about functional behavior analysis, which sounds like mm. a fancy term, but really it's it's something that most people do quite naturally, most parents do quite naturally, but sometimes they don't do it necessarily in a systematic way. Mm. What we do as psychologists is to do that very systematically, and what we do is we take a behavior that we are finding challenging, that we want to try to maybe modify, and We track that behavior over a period of time that helps us determine what is causing that behavior. What are the things or the antecedents that are happening Mm -hmm. right before the behavior occurs that lead to that behavior happening? And then also... What happens right after that behavior? Are there things that other people are doing, we're doing, or the child is doing that actually reinforces that behavior or sustains that behavior? Mm -hmm. So, those are important things to look at, too. What happens before, what happens after, the antecedents and the consequences. And then that allows us to figure out over a period of time when you've tracked it, what it is that's triggering that behavior and maybe what's sustaining it. Once you do that, Once you've played that detective role, then you can determine what strategies uh, might be useful to help modify that behavior. But, you know, if you don't kind of figure that out first, you're flying blind. You could try lots of different strategies that won't work because you're not actually hitting the nail on the head as to what's causing that behavior. So it's really important to try to determine that first. Take the time to figure it out. See what might be causing that or triggering that. And then you can start making those changes.
1: We hear, you mentioned something about the aftermath of this happening and how we respond to them. I know that there's a lot of like parenting advice out there and they talk about like how co-regulation is very important and how the way that we kind of um, support our child in, in regulating their emotions make, makes a big difference. Are, are we seeing, is this just as important with a neuro, neurodivergent child and how might that look differently if you're a parent of a neuro, neurodivergent child in terms of like that co-regulation piece?
0: Yeah, it's absolutely extremely important for, for any person, for any child, to have a person who's able to help them regulate and help uh, bring them through that situation. Sometimes a parent's efforts might do the opposite. So sometimes <laughs> parents try to help their child regulate, but what they're doing is actually overstimulating the child even more. <laughs> so it is important to be really in tune as much as you can be with your child's cues Uh, We talk about uh, in behavior modification, the fact that every behavior is communication. So your child is Mm -hmm. always trying to communicate with you with these behaviors. And so it's important to try to listen to that and figure out what are they trying to tell you? And it can be difficult to do, but trying to be in tune with, oh, this thing seems to work, you know, or they seem to need this kind of environment, let's say, Mm -hmm. to help them calm down. The things that they may need might require you to adapt your environment a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we do talk about things like having a quiet corner set up, sometimes a little tent indoors filled with blankets and cushions and other things that the child might find soothing. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's as simple as just directing to them them to that space. And the parent maybe doesn't need to do a lot more beyond that. But certainly, often neurodivergent children do need a little bit more help because they don't always have the tools that come as naturally to them to help them right. cope as other children start to learn over time and so sometimes mm-hmm. they need to be taught that a little bit more systematically than a neurotypical child uh
1: well we spoke about the parent and i know that sometimes as parents we you know our children catch us in these moments that might not be our best moments and then it's hard for us to kind of stay cool like a lot of parents here like be calm when your parent when your child has lots of emotions but it's so hard in that moment. And I know that parents kind of have the guilt around that. Um, you, you said something about like, you know, sometimes we're not really, we're, we're kind of not making it worse, but we're adding to it. What are some things that parents can keep in mind, you know, in terms of like, try to avoid doing this or saying this in those moments, especially when you're struggling with regulating yourself?
0: Yeah, that can be very tricky. <laughs> Certainly, right. if you're rushed and you're in a hurry and you're feeling stressed, it can be difficult to step back and try to remain right. cool and calm. Absolutely. One of the main things is to try to avoid that situation in the first place. So, you know, I, <laughs> I often tell parents, make sure you have plenty of time, right, as much as you can to get ready in the morning or pick your child up from school or go and get groceries trying to plan ahead those things so that you don't end up in a situation where you're rushed and having to deal with the behavior, Mm -hmm. you know, in a a stressful moment is, but of course it's easy to say that and very difficult to do in real life. Uh, But (laughs) sometimes there is a way to kind of plan your day around, okay, this might trigger my child and therefore, you know, I need to be mindful that this might not be the right time to go Mm -hmm. to, you know, get groceries or something like that to avoid times when they might be hungry or or, or tired. But obviously if you can't do that, there are things that you can do to try to remind yourself to step back. Sometimes I tell parents because sometimes parents think I don't know what to do, you know, and and they, Mm -hmm. and they grasp to try to find A solution and find something that they can do to react in the moment. And sometimes I tell parents, you know what, it's actually okay to just take a moment and breathe Mm. a few times and really try to think about what your reaction should be before you react. It's not always necessary to jump in right away. Sometimes it's okay to let your child maybe have a little bit of that meltdown for a little bit. As you think <laughs> about what might be the best response and mm. it's very hard for parents because we want to get in and we want to fix it and we want to respond. But mm-hmm. sometimes taking that minute to just reflect on what should I be doing here can be very helpful and take those deep breaths and try to figure out what strategy might work best in that moment And definitely having a plan in advance, that's why I talked about these proactive and reactive strategies, kind of figuring out what it is that might drive that behavior. And sometimes you're going to do all the proactive things you can, and the behavior is still going to happen. But it's important to try to plan in advance, what is my response going to be if it does happen? And what are some of the strategies that I'm going to use when those behaviors come up? And then you already know what your response Mm. is going to be. And then you just need to implement it. And sometimes the other trick is try to think about your child as being some, someone else's child. Like take a moment <laughs> and just think. <laughs> sometimes if you're feeling really upset, think, I'm going to pretend this is somebody else's child. What would I do to respond to them? Because often we are more patient and talk yeah. with other people's it's children. True. And so sometimes that is a little trick that works. I know because <laughs> I think what would I do with my you know, my patients that I treat right. in this moment instead of my own child. And that actually makes me respond better to
1: it. I think that's the key word, right? You're, you're, you mentioned react and then respond. I think that's really important for us to highlight that because we are quick to react to our kids. You know, they're not listening. We repeat ourselves. And this is any parent. We react to their to their behavior or to their, their big emotions. But when we actually take that time to respond, there's a very big difference there's a pause. There's maybe we need to be our friend as well too, right? In our minds, we could be a little kinder to ourselves sometimes, or just remind ourselves that we're tired. <laughs> With the today's uh, we had um uh, the hour change, right? And yesterday and today's been quite a <laughs> difficult day in my house, and it's it's like we have to just be aware that behavior will be a little bit different this week in our home, and I I'm trying to be mindful of that. Um, but that that pause is just. It could be a split second, but in our mind, it's enough for us to kind of reconnect with ourselves and then connect with our child. It makes such a huge difference. I love that you've used those two words.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's very yeah. important to remember that you don't have to react immediately. Right, you definitely right. Take a minute. Mm-hmm. Your child, as long as they're safe, is going to be okay.
1: You mm-hmm. just need
0: to kind of think about what you're going to do. Uh, and, you know, and I say that, but there are times when the child is not safe. And and that does right. happen, too, with our neurodivergent mm. kids. Sometimes they are engaging in self-injurious behavior. They mm-hmm. keep banging their heads on things. So first and foremost thing is make sure they're safe. Once mm. you've established their safety, then you can take a minute to think about what you need to do next.
1: Right. I do want to jump into the behavior part because that is what we see externally sometimes when there are meltdowns or emotions that'll kind of show itself in a behavior that could be challenging that could be challenging for us as parents. First, I just want to ask one little question because I've seen this very often or heard this where parents say, you know, I heard this advice online and I applied it while my child was screaming. I told them, take a deep breath, remember remember your meditation or whatever it was. But I see that as like the right tool, but at the wrong time, (laughs) right? Because at that moment when your child is, I, I picture a mountain for kids, but just they're at the top of that mountain and there's just no way that we can get to them, is this even, uh, is this more, uh, like, I guess, amplified? Or, you know, or is it similar in in ND kids?
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Definitely. It's about teaching those skills at times when they're calm. So I talked about how often the best proactive strategy is to teach skills, right? So right. If a child is unable to communicate their needs and wants, then the best thing to do is to teach them a means of communication. And it can be something Mm -hmm. as simple as a hand gesture or a picture that they hold up. It doesn't have to be talking or words. It needs to be something that they can do. And once they have more skills in their toolbox then often those behaviors will diminish on their own. And some of the Mm -hmm. skills that we need to teach are things like how to relax, how to calm yourself, how to cope in those moments when you're feeling stressed out. And so often what I recommend is sometimes there are sensory strategies that parents can do. And so they can institute little sensory breaks where they help their child perform different sensory Mm -hmm. activities on a regular basis throughout the day or throughout certain activities that might be stressful for them. So Mm -hmm. those are things that you can incorporate ahead of time so that the child learns how to do those things. But also I often give parents little relaxation books or social stories that teach a child how to do those relaxation strategies, Mm -hmm. like taking deep breaths and counting to 10 and squeezing a stress ball or whatever it might be that they find soothing, the time to do that is to read those books with your child and practice those strategies in times when they're calm already. Right. (laughs) and do that regularly. So you might yeah. do that every day or every second day, and we go through our little routine. Maybe it's a nice thing to do at bedtime if if bedtime isn't already a stressful time, if they're yes. happy and calm. <laughs> so you incorporate those things at times when they are calm and they're available to learn because nobody is available to learn anything when they're feeling stressed out and emotional mm-hmm. and upset right? Mm -hmm. Myself included. So that's not the time to try to teach anything. So if you catch them when they're calm, and you can teach them those strategies, then once you start to see the behavior start to build and a meltdown start to happen, then you can then sometimes prompt them to use those strategies And you have a lot more chance of being successful if you do that, when they're already pre prepared, and they've pre learned how to do those things. And you can kind of say, Oh, remember, you know, let's practice the deep breaths. And let's go Mm -hmm. to the quiet corner. And let's, you know, put on our soothing music or whatever it might be. So definitely, definitely, you're, you're absolutely right that the right tools need to be implemented at the right time in order for them to be useful.
1: So it's sort of at the, when you're noticing that ascent, I guess, if I picture that mountain, right, like they're ascending and you notice that they're starting to show these visible signs of being dysregulated or something is happening with their emotions, that's a good time to kind of say like, remember those tools that we've been practicing, right? Not when they're (laughs) in those moments where you just can't connect with them. And it happens to all kids too, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. And, and I mean, I will say that sometimes it can be hard because sometimes some kids go from zero to sixty very fast. And so right.
1: True. there yeah. may
0: not be time before you can notice those signs coming before they're already <laughs> in a fall meltdown. So that can be tricky, but that's where trying to take notice of those times when those things are likely to happen and then building in those calming strategies or those sensory strategies into that task or situation before Mm -hmm. the behavior happens is important, right. To just kind of try to set them up for success from the beginning. Yeah.
1: And, what happens in the situation where you just explained when sometimes they might be trying to harm themselves or harm somebody around them? Mm-hmm. Um, I've had parents reach out that don't know how to respond to that because there's still a point where you're trying to help the child regulate, but there's also a behavioral issue that, or, or a situation in that moment where you don't want them to hurt a sibling or to hurt you or themselves. How do you balance that? And, and what does, I guess, the, what does the consequence or what does discipline look like for that child in particular?
0: Yeah, those are probably the the trickiest because obviously when a child is potentially harming themselves and or Mm -hmm. others, that's when parents really definitely can't stop themselves from intervening. And Mm -hmm. it's important obviously to keep the child safe. Sometimes it can be as simple as just putting a mattress or a cushion or something between their head and the floor and that's all you can do in that moment because mm-hmm. if they are having such a big meltdown and i and i mm-hmm. have seen this where it is dangerous for people around them and there's really nothing else to be done other than just trying to make sure that there is cushioning there so that they don't hurt themselves mm-hmm. so sometimes it's really about just you know doing those quick things to make sure that they're safe Mm-hmm. And then kind of waiting it out, because sometimes if you try to get in their space and you try to physically restrain them, that can make it worse, right? right. So, mm-hmm. it, and, and sometimes not. I mean, it, it's, it's tricky because some kids respond well to mm-hmm. what we call deep pressure, right? So if you kind of, you know, give them a bear hug and you put your arms around them, and sometimes that kind of pressure can calm them down that's where again you need to really pay attention to your child to kind of know what they're going to respond to and what's going to make it worse so sometimes there's nothing to be done other than to just try to do something to make sure that they're safe and then if they're banging their head on the floor but you've gotten a pillow or a cushion underneath them and they're not hurting themselves sometimes you just kind of wait until they're done before you can kind of move on and try to do anything about it. And it's unfortunate, it's so hard to watch. But sometimes that can be the best thing to do because our efforts at those moments can actually sometimes exacerbate the behavior or make it prolonged beyond what they would do if you just sort of took a step back. So it's really about just trying to find those things that can keep them safe in that moment.
1: After everything has happened, do you, I'm assuming you have a conversation with your child and try to explain, would it work the same way? Are you explaining maybe perhaps different ways that they could do, like go about it when it comes to having their meltdowns or are they not in control of that, of it when it's happening?
0: Well, it really depends on the child. So some children, mm-hmm definitely would not have the verbal comprehension to be able to understand an explanation and to be able to engage in that kind of conversation. Some kids would. So it really depends on, you know, what their, what their language level is, Mm. so that you can determine whether or not that's something they can understand. And certainly, like I said, you know, the main thing is, I think, trying to explain to them probably isn't going to be the most helpful strategy because in that moment, that explanation is going to fly out of their head. Right. So that's Hmm. where focusing on building skills is really the thing to do because often these meltdowns happen because a child is not able to communicate what they're needing or, they are getting overwhelmed by certain stimuli. And so that's where those proactive strategies are so important, because the more you build in skills to help them learn how to communicate better or, or at all what they need, or you build in that uh, stress release as the situation is unfolding, the less and less these things will happen. So really, I I always try to focus on, okay, sometimes these meltdowns will happen and sometimes they will engage in these behaviors, but the goal is to try to teach them enough skills so that over time they just diminish and you can prevent them from happening at all so that you don't have to worry about how to react to them. And often that does, that does work.
1: I'm sure a parent who's listening to this, perhaps their child is a little bit younger. And if they have a neurodivergent child, they're wondering like, is there an end to this? Or will this kind of, you know, will the level perhaps like decrease a little bit? So I'm sure it feels good to kind of hear that we do have to offer them skills. It's not that it might disappear from what I'm understanding, but it will get better with time.
0: In many cases. Or depends. In many cases it will if the child is really taught those skills. And, and, and those skills are not easy to teach, right? I mean, trying Mm -hmm. to teach communication to some kiddos can be very, very challenging. Neurodivergent kids, kids on the spectrum often have very difficult time with language, they have a difficult time using gestures as well. And Mm -hmm. so trying to teach them means to communicate can be really tricky. And unfortunately, here in, you know, in our context, not many children are offered the opportunity to learn alternative means of communication. There are Mm. things like uh, what we call AAC, augmentative and alternative communication devices. And that's really just not offered very often in our Mm. programs here for kids uh, on the spectrum. We don't have enough of that. They're not, there are not enough experts in that. And it's just not being done systematically Mm -hmm. enough, unfortunately. And so I have seen many kids who end up as teenagers, and they still don't have a means to communicate. And Mm -hmm. nobody's ever Mm -hmm. taught them a way to communicate their needs and their wants and their and their issues. And so those behaviors often will continue. But I have also seen the flip side where I have seen kids who were taught those communication strategies and they were able to communicate better and those behaviors did decrease over time. And so I really do think that that is is the most important thing. But unfortunately, it's often just not being offered to families Here, I find in our programs as much as it should.
1: Is it common in the States? I know that there are lots of listeners in the US. It is okay. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that sometimes the way that the interventions work there uh, with their insurance systems, sometimes they have (laughs) access to a wider variety of things. Certainly, here in Quebec, if you get services through the public system, we have a very cookie cutter approach to mm. our autism intervention, for example. Everybody sort of gets put on the same list for the same services, and we don't have a lot of variety that's tailored to the child, unfortunately. Mm. If you go privately, And certainly in the U.S., where there are different providers and people's insurance might pay for different types of things, there are often more options. Mm -hmm. And even in other parts of Canada, there are some provinces that do allow parents to go out and sort of purchase the services for their child. They're kind of given the government kind of gives them control over the, the, the funding and mm-hmm. that they go and they choose the services that make sense for their child, usually, hopefully based on uh, recommendations by professionals. But, and, and I have seen those kinds of systems work extremely well for kids, but here we are very much in a situation where there's sort of a, a, a one size fits all approach, unfortunately.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate, you know, when it comes to these services, I wish that it was kind of more uh, across the board with what you're saying in terms of it not being that cookie cutter approach, because we know, especially with neurodivergent kids, that they do need very specific needs and they're not the same. And they're, you know, it's, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's
0: a very heterogeneous yeah. group and right. not all children need ABA, which is what, right. unfortunately, they're going to get. Yeah. If mm. they if they get services at all, which unfortunately mm. is also a problem.
1: Yeah. What um can a parent now? I guess I I have a feeling that some parents that are listening to this who don't have a neurodivergent child or a child who just hasn't been diagnosed yet, but feel like some of the things that you're mentioning are things that they're seeing in their home. So I, I, I do want to address that before we move on to like the last sort of question that deals around social skills with kids. But I do want to, maybe we can talk about Some signs that a parent should be, you know, aware of, because I know some parents sometimes ask, "What is the difference between a?" They'll use the term "normal," right? What's normal when it comes to tantrums? But what I like to say is, like, what should you be looking out for in terms of signs that you could perhaps talk to your doctor about it, because the tantrum or big emotion is more than what it should be developmentally at that age. So, what should what should parents be looking out for?
0: Right. Well, when it comes to those kinds of behaviors, there is obviously variation between kids, right? So even Mm -hmm. neurotypical kids will differ in how well they regulate themselves Mm -hmm. and how long it takes them to learn those skills and what kinds of uh, tantrums they'll have. So there is a fair amount of variability there already. I would say the, the main red flags around those kinds of behaviors would be first of all, I, I think anytime a child is engaging in self-injury, that's,
1: right.
0: that's an important thing to pay attention to and to talk to your doctor about. And neurotypical kids will engage in self-injury sometimes too. Often they will do it in a way where they kind of experiment with it a little bit. They might bang their head on something and then look to see what their parents' reaction is. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, 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 and they will often, you know, sort of, Figure out pretty quickly that that doesn't feel very good for them. And they sometimes won't continue to do it. Sometimes they will a little bit if they see a a good reaction and they Mm -hmm. get the pay. But quite often, if we have kids who are engaging in self injury and they're not necessarily checking in with the parent to kind of look at that parent's reaction, and they are just sort of doing it in a way that seems like they may not have a lot of control over their behavior, that to me is something that I would be concerned about and would talk to the doctor about because mm-hmm. most children aren't going to purposefully harm themselves or they're not going to often do it for long if mm-hmm. they are typically developing and they are looking for you know, a reaction or getting the consequence that they like. Mm-hmm. So that's a flag for me. I also feel like just the just the length of time, you know, so a lot of kids will wear themselves out after 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. uh, half an hour, maybe, but we hear about some parents who talk about their children having a, a meltdown that can last 45 minutes, an hour, over an hour, you know, once it gets to be quite long like that, that is something that I would also want to bring out to my doctors. Mm-hmm. It's really about sort of how how long is it going on for? How much do they seem like they're really able to control themselves? When you mm-hmm. do get involved and you try to help them calm themselves and 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 regulate again, how long does that take? How do they respond mm-hmm. to that? You know, those are the things I would watch for. Uh, but certainly those are usually not things that are happening alone. So quite often there's other signs that we need to be mindful of as well. So if a child is having other developmental delays Mm -hmm. and they are not keeping up with their peers in terms of their language development or their motor development or their social development, other things like that, then that would definitely prompt me to be even more concerned if I see that there are those kinds of challenging behaviors, or or we sometimes call them behaviors that challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and as well, there are other developmental delays, I would then, you know, be sure to talk to my pediatrician about that.
1: Okay. Thank you. I, I wanted to bring that up because as we were talking, I, I had a feeling that some parents will question, well, if I'm seeing this in my home, and I'm glad that you also said it's not always in isolation, there has to be some other sort of signs that we're seeing. Um, we've, you've mentioned now a few times in terms of the communication and the social skills. So I'd love, I'd love to end that, our conversation with this because I find that as a society and as parents, we often put a lot of pressure on our kids to be social and to develop these skills. I hear of parents saying, you know, when their 12 month old starts daycare, you know, I, I want them to learn to be social right now. And there's a lot that goes around that. There's a huge importance on that. But then we know that in neurodivergent children or kids on the spectrum that it's not the path or this, you know, the what we expect it to be is not going to look the same. Mm-hmm. How do we support our child who is on the spectrum or, or neurodivergent who might be struggling with the social aspect that we expect them to be developing you know, we we from a very good place, obviously want them to have friends and to, you know, support that part of their development. How can we, we do that as parents? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that can be very tricky. And mm-hmm. uh, I'd say that it's important to just maybe change the expectations a little bit. So, for example, many parents will put their children into a sport to try to help them socialize. True. So right. they might put them into soccer and want them to play on a soccer team because they think, okay, they're going to be there amongst a group of kids and they're going to you know, have to interact. That might be a level of demand that is just too high. And so I Mm -hmm. often tell parents, maybe try a different activity that doesn't have that level of demand regarding cooperation with a group of of kids. You know, group play and that interactive play in a group can be very, very tricky when you're also at the same time trying to actually learn how to motorically play a sport. (laughs) A lot of things going on. And there are a lot of neurodivergent kids who also struggle with motor skills and, and and coordination. And so that can be even more challenging. So I often would recommend things like maybe think about a sport that doesn't have the same demand for interactive play. So it can be something like a martial arts class where, you know, you're you're in a group of kids, but you are... Kind of paying attention to your instructor and practicing doing some of the movements you know on your own, but then paired up maybe one on one, right or a swimming class where again you're you're paying attention to the instructor and you're doing things alone uh, mm-hmm. or with the instructor and not necessarily in some kind of you know interactive joint play. So it's about trying to just, adjust those expectations Mm -hmm. a little bit. And we do also know that for uh, kids on the spectrum, often just having one close friend, you know, can Mm -hmm. be enough that can be protective, that can make a big difference. We don't need to have a giant group of friends, but Mm -hmm. one good friend is great. You know, that can be a very protective thing. And so Mm -hmm. definitely it's about trying to support them socially but not push so hard that it becomes really stressful mm-hmm. and pay attention to what it is that they that they want some kids on the spectrum are actually quite motivated to want to socialize and they definitely want to have friends and they want to play with other kids some children on the spectrum have less of a motivation towards that mm-hmm. so it's really about sort of figuring out where your child is at And then figuring out what might be the right level of socialization for them. And of course, if they really are wanting to go and make friends, teaching them those strategies, building those skills, right? Mm -hmm. This is how we have a conversation. This is how we approach somebody and ask them to play. This is how we might say hello to someone and give them a compliment. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of these kinds of skills that we can teach that are not necessarily coming so naturally. And all we need to do is to kind of make it very explicit. You know, this is, these are the essentials to having a conversation and this is what you need Mm -hmm. to know. And those can be taught to kids often using social stories. um, But definitely, you know, that's, that's what I would suggest is, you know, try to just kind of adjust your expectations to your child and where Mm -hmm. they're at regarding their socialization and then teach those skills that they are, are maybe missing.
1: Right. And, f- and what I'm hearing also is kind of maybe scaffolding things for them, right? Like going to the park and assuming that they'll go out and maybe make a friend or play with somebody is might not be the situation. Or like you said, they might be motivated to go, but then not approach it the same way that we would expect them to. So I guess breaking it down for them into the baby steps, right? So that they know exactly what step one or two and how to go about it.
0: Yeah. And it's also about being mindful of the fact that some environments are going to be more challenging for them to socialize. Mm -hmm. So going to the park, for example, sometimes that can be overwhelming because there are a Mm -hmm. lot of kids, there is a lot of activity and there's a lot of noise. And so sometimes Mm -hmm. that's not the ideal scenario for them to be able to go and, and try to practice those social skills and try to make a friend. Or play with another child. Sometimes it can be better if you arrange a play date and you have one child over to your own home where your child is comfortable and they have their things around them and you keep it very short and you plan an activity so that we know exactly what we're gonna be doing. We're going to be doing these particular steps. It's not Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, vague in terms of what what (laughs) They're expected to do. We we plan an activity, we do the steps, we might have a visual schedule showing us first we're going to do this, then this, then this. And when the activity is over, the friend goes, you know, and so it's a nice little packaged time for them (laughs) where they really know what to expect Mm -hmm. for them to be able to practice those skills that can make it easier. Sometimes having unstructured play is just really, really challenging. But if you can structure Mm -hmm. it for them and say, okay, we're going to do this little activity that can really help because then they kind of know this is what I got to do.
1: Got it. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I think it's really important for parents to hear this and understand what that might look like in their home because i don't think from the emails that i get i don't think everybody gets services or gets this kind of guidance when it comes to support um you know people emailing me from different countries as well that just don't even have their child hasn't even seen a doctor they see the signs and symptoms but there's no diagnosis so i think it's important for them to hear all this to be able to support their child in a way that helps them with their development too
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and I think the only other thing I would say is, and I think I've said this a few times, but really, you know, anything I'm saying today, strategies and advice, you know, it really does depend though on the child. And so
1: right. yeah. I, I'm yeah.
0: trying to kind of give some general ideas, but at the same time, it is so important for people to talk to a professional, a clinician, a teacher, somebody who can offer strategies tailored to that particular child because every child is so different and their needs are so different. And it's really about meeting them where they're at
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: trying to build on the skills that they have. Uh, And that's not the same for everybody. And so, you know, I, I, I do want to just sort of, you know, give that little caveat that, some of the things that I said today, you know, parents might go and try and that might not be the right thing for their child. Right. So it's important that they really do try to as much as possible, seek out someone that can give them those very individualized strategies.
1: Are there any resources that you know, any websites that you recommend or a book that you might think of? I know I'm putting on the spot, but anything that you if, if not, it's okay, we can add it to the show notes if you you can't remember of any but something that can help a parent, you know, get started with the first steps and how to support their child.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, like I said, I, I, I tend to focus a lot on building skills. And so I definitely Mm -hmm. always recommend uh, programs that are geared towards often communication, because that is usually the biggest challenge amongst Mm -hmm. this particular group of kids. So programs like the Hannon program, more than words, uh, those kinds of books and 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 more than words also has, uh, I think a you know, a video that that parents can watch, things like that can be really useful to help parents learn how to intervene with their kids. Also, in my lab, we have a research study that is running an intervention trial using the caregiver skills training, which is a parent mediated, Um, intervention that was developed by the WHO, and that particular program was designed to be able to be adapted to many different countries and contexts, and it's available in lots of places and in lots of languages, and the whole goal of that program is exactly that, to kind of teach parents how to work with their kids through play and through home routines that they're already doing mm-hmm. to just try to stimulate their communication skills stimulate their play skills stimulate their social skills so that kind of program i think is super uh interesting for parents to look up as well and the good thing about this CST we call the the caregiver skills training program is that there is now an electronic module for it so even though it is something that has started to be offered more and more by interventionists in different places, there is this electronic version that parents can sort of self guide themselves through so that they Mm -hmm. can do the program and learn some of these skills on their own online to be able to know kind of how to just how to reach their kids in the things that they're already doing at home in a way that stimulates that, that development and really, like I said, those are the main things is building those skills and trying to, you know, trying to get in there and and mm-hmm. functional skills to help prevent those behaviors that can be challenging.
1: Perfect. Can we add that link to the show notes so that parents could, is there a link that they could uh, to join or to learn more about that study? Yeah, absolutely. For the program? Yes. Perfect we will add everything i know the parents are listening saying i need that link <laughs> so we will add everything and the resources that julie mentioned thank you julie for coming on for a second time and for having a conversation with me i know this will have like more follow up questions but i truly appreciate your help and 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 you coming back
0: well thank you again for having <laughs> me back and i was so happy that there was actually interest and demand <laughs> <laughs> for me to come back so yes. uh, i feel very uh, honored that i just was- <laughs> that I was invited. So thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Thank everyone. And please don't forget to rate the podcast and leave a review and follow us on Instagram at curious underscore neuron. Thank you.